this is Castle One. Race officer speaking. That's a good one, Jimmy. They're gaining on the Welcome back, podcast listeners. It's great to have you along with us. If you haven't already listened to Brad Butterworth Part 1, it's worth checking that out first. You get a real sense of the man and how he developed into such a force within our sport. In this part, we are really into the meat of his career. Racing with Russell Coates, winning the cup and defending it at home for his proud nation, and then all that followed. I won't spoil the surprise if you don't know the story. If the behind the scenes goings on in Cupland is your bag, then you're in for a real treat. If you're enjoying what you hear, then head over to buy me a coffee forward slash sailing podcast. It's easy to use, I promise, and your support is really appreciated. It allows us to stay ad free and to keep on delivering these uninterrupted pods. If you've supported us already, then many thanks. Right, let's get on with it. Here he is. And to get things underway, we're at the 1998 Sydney Hobart race. I hope you enjoy part two of the time I spent with Brad Butterworth. It's a hard thing for them to do, but they should have cancelled that race or delayed it. If somebody goes over, you'll be lucky to retrieve that person. 70 knots, you're just surviving. That's a hurricane. You don't want to poke Coots too many times before he pokes you back, you know. Brad, in 1995, you're 36 years old. You've won the America's Cup for your country, for New Zealand. The sailing world is wide open to you. There's a ton of avenues to go down. But before we get back into the Cup, let's talk offshore. You'd won the Whitbread with Peter Blake in 89. But in 1998, you did this Sydney Hobart race on board Larry Ellison's Sayonara. It was an addition of the race that would end in tragedy. Six lives lost, the fleet devastated by hurricane winds. What do you remember about the start of that Sydney Hobart? Actually, the lead up to it was uh, a little, was just really sort of, I think it uh, is a lesson that it hasn't quite been learned. But the lead up to it was, um, you know, you, the, the weather forecasting was getting worse by the day by day leading up to that. And so I'll never forget what happened in that race because obviously, you know, guys that we all knew, Glenn Charles, perished. And uh, there was a lot of people that we knew that was, uh, it was just a tragedy that shouldn't really have happened, you know. And, the, you know, you can blame you know, the plot of people, you can blame, you can blame the sport, you can blame everything. But I mean, you know, sailors usually, or sports people, if something, if they're going to run a competition, they very rarely try to cancel it because of bad weather or whatever. You know, they just push on and do it. But that that day, uh, Dixon and I, Chris Dixon was the skipper of the boat. Larry Allison was sailing on board. Well, actually, Lachlan Murdoch, which is Rupert Murdoch's son, was on board, and we had a, a really strong group of uh, guys with a probably six to eight 
Whitbread or around the world race veterans, you know. And uh, I went to the pre-race weather forecasting and the guys there, I met guys there and his father, Christmas hat, beautiful sunny day in Sydney. Here's the map up, here's these two converging systems and says, oh, well, you might get a quite a bit of wind in Bass Strait, but, you know, don't think. And so somebody says, well, how much wind? He says, oh, you know, you might see 50 knots. And, he, you know, and there's just disbelief because people just don't believe those guys, you know. So there's, I'm going, Jesus, okay. So then I, we go back to our own private, we have breakfast together down in Rushcutters Bay and Clouds is there, Roger Bannum, who was doing the weather, and he said, listen, this is not good. It's, it could blow 70. And I'm going, Jesus. I don't know if they should start this race because how you know there's a lot of boats that just won't cope with that. Seventies a hurricane. Anyway, I told most of the guys. Well, they all listened, but they didn't really. And so you know, all the light wet weather gear went off the boat. All the heavy wet weather gear, all our harnesses became attached to our wet weather gear. My boots, instead of sailing shoes, showed up. We just went off fully worked up, ready to go. And, uh, yeah, they just, they, they, you know, basically they, it's a hard thing for them to do, but they should have cancelled that race or delayed it by two days would have made a big difference. But it was a beautiful day sailing out of the Sydney Heads, beautiful sunny, you know, the full-on Sydney farewell, you know, fantastic. And then that night that southerly buster came in and it just got worse and worse and worse. And then the wind gear blew off the top of the, off the top of the tree at 72 knots. Well, we, you know, it took us four hours to put the storm jib on. The sea state was so bad. And uh, Joey Allen and those guys, you know, just muscling things up. And then our boat just shut down in terms of personnel and we had basically relying on, we were flicked into sort of survival mode and, you know, guys like Robbie Naismith and actually Hamish Pepper, did a fantastic job, but Tony Ray, you know, just those guys that we've sailed with through their career, you know, and they just were solid all the way through. But you could just hear it on the on the radio that night. It just went bad because our um, our navigator was Mark Rudica, who's actually died, unfortunately now. But he was a great guy, and he was calling them saying, you know, it's blowing fifty and sea states this, and you know, it's not good. <laughs> And so you could hear those, and then the Maydays just started coming in. And actually the port side of our boat sort of gave way. We had to tack over and brace it up. Actually, um, Tugboat was sailing with us, and he was a boat builder. He's a boat builder for Oracle, obviously. And so he was came, we had, had a look at it. Larry wasn't too happy about that. But, yeah, we had tacked over, and by that stage we could get into the lee of, or closer to uh, Tasmania. But it was like a it was like a wake when you got to the finish. It was not good. Everybody just left, got got off the boat and left. Larry actually did a little speech about you know how achieving, surviving, sort of thing, which was very good, you know. But it was yeah, it wasn't very good, very bad. Did you ever think about not going? I mean, I I bring that up because I was in I was in Sydney that year, and actually with 
Glyn Charles, who, who did die, been part of the Olympic team and he was there coaching with some of us. And I remember in that build-up, actually, he didn't want to go. I mean, he had, I mean, if you know, if you know a little, you have reservations about what you're taking on. But he went anyway. Yeah. And I often think that, you know, that we're not very good at making our own decisions, really, whether to go or not. No, there's a lot of peer pressure because yeah. he would have had mates on board that wanted him to go. And, you know, I think that's where the sport should take over and should say, look, we're going to make, it's a hard decision, but we're going to cancel it or we're going to delay it or whatever. Especially 50 knots. 50 knots, things change dramatically at sea. So 50 knots becomes, you can't, you can't, you know, you can't retrieve. If somebody goes over, you've, you'll be lucky to retrieve that person. 70 knots, you're just surviving. That's a hurricane. You just, you, we were in 70 knots, we were, you know, we had a, just, we had a trisol on and a storm jam on, and that was too much. And we were just trying to slow the boat down and just get to the, get through that part of the, the night. And then the next day, things sort of, you know, didn't really back off until we got up until, um, right up until Tasman Island. It was pretty bad. So, yeah. I think we we do a bad job with that. How did that race affect what you've taken on since? Well, I was keen to quit offshore sailing. That's for sure. I didn't want to go back to do the Hobart. But I did eventually. But it was, yeah, it left a mark on me. I wasn't that happy with that because it was, I mean, and we were in a big boat, eh? And we were, you know, it blew really hard. And I think we were... We were good at that, seamanship and stuff like that. You know, we were relying on what Blake had taught us. So, you know, all that sort of stuff came out, which was good. But, uh, yeah, that yeah, it was a, a bit too close to the bone, that. With, when, when somebody dies in our sport, it's just not it's just not on the menu, you know. It's a bit like when, um, you know, Bart died in San Francisco, you know. It's just it's just not on the menu, you know. A day day race. Somebody loses their life. It's uh, not good. Well, back home, and the tension was turning to the defence of the cup. What was the feeling in New Zealand? So Peter Blake was involved, Russell Coates, of course. Momentum was gathering. What was that period like in the build-up to 2000? Uh, it was a pretty intense because we were sort of on our own. And we'd try to run some, uh, we called them green boat regattas here with the, the boats from the time before, the far boats that we'd built a lot of for 92. And so we'd, you know, teams would come down and sail against us in, the, in these regattas. I think we did, you know, we were good, we did a good job of that in terms of being able to be competitive, you know, having these boats that, uh, were user friendly. So the teams weren't using their technology or anything, then they felt, reasonably comfortable, you know, although they probably thought it was a bit one-sided in terms of it was our boats and, you know, how we let them sail them and how we, you know, the time they got to train and all those little things that add up to whether you're happy or not. But it's, um, I think we did a good job with that and that made a big difference long-term. And we had different guys sail. Murray Jones did one regatta where he sailed the boat and Coots and I were out of it. And... Uh, we were trying to bring, you know, younger guys like Dean Barker and 
that they were sort of coming in. We were using those guys a lot to try and lift, you know, the quality and the strength of the team. Why was that important to you? Because uh, we, I think we had a vision of the future that we could, you know, make this, we could keep it for a long period of time if we had the right formula. And so, you know, Cooch was big on that. He, you know, he, he sort of stuck with it. You know, I wasn't that keen in terms of, especially when we were racing the, the defence that year, and that, uh, you know, he, he put Dean Barker on for the last race. And that was a shock to Barker. You know, he wasn't expecting. I think he was enjoying the, uh, the whole anonymity of not having to actually front up, you know. But he put him on for the last race. No, we're not crossed, you know. I don't know if this is a good idea. <laughs> anyway, it turned out pretty good. Dean did a great job. and He'd actually, through that whole campaign, he did a great job. Yeah. What was the feeling like winning the Cup in home waters? I mean, the only team other than the US to have done it, of course. What did that mean, that win mean here in this country? Well, I think it means they probably don't realise what it means to the actual sailing group or the... To, to to win it and defend it, I think, is a big deal. I think it's hard to keep defending it, but to win it and then defend it, it's two different, very different ways that you have to treat it. And they, I think we, you know, I mean, we've done it a couple of times. So it, we, that group knew how to do that and lifted their game to, you know, from being a challenger we were a lot better group in 2000 than we were in 95 because we stuck together and we developed as a unit and everything. You know, we were really students of the game. It's interesting you say that because we always say, particularly in commentary, we always say, you know, for the defender, they get to, I mean, the, the altar stacked in favour of the defender. You know, they, they, pick, they pick the boat, they pick the venue, they, you know, they're... They can decide a lot, but yet you say it's much harder to defend. Why is that? Because you're on your own, and you're the you know you're always going to be the bad guy in the whole thing because it's it's in your patch, it's your you know part of the world. You certainly the and I think with the Vision Five boats, it was a little easier for challenging teams because the boats got so refined that it was just small parts of them that were you know, being modified and making a difference, but tiny, tiny things. And so you had to actually get better sailing, like technically sailing the boats. And so we did a lot of that. And uh, nowadays, I think the pendulum's a little bit, I see it as a bit of a pendulum, and so I think it is a bit too far on the, on the defender's side, you know. These new boats, every time they change the boats, it's a raw, like it's a raw, very raw thing, and so there's, you know, it's tough for the challenging teams to grasp a new rule, then find the tools to use to design the boat to come up with a, a good package, you know. The defender has a better, because he's got over a year of more exposure to what it's going to be. So he's thinking about things a long, a long way ahead of the challenges. So if they keep the same boats for next time, which is, I think would make a big difference. That would that would add to more competitors, more, you know, 
closer racing and I think be good. Back in 2000, how did you make it difficult for the challengers? What did, what did you do as defenders? We did everything we could possibly do. So there was no, uh, initially the, they were building the viaduct. So there's nowhere to go really here for a, like a five meter deep IACC yacht to sail in and out of. So we were over in the naval base and Luna Rossa, who was the, they were the challenger of record, they had to come there as well. So, you know, just the procedures of getting in there, tied and difficult, you know, everything like that wasn't easy for, for any of those teams. And you always fight over the water space. And so we were always aware of that was going to be a key thing. So we got control of the water space from, from day one and wouldn't let them sort of get anywhere near the race course that we were going to use that much. So, you know, they, they, in the end, you sort of had one day on and one day off or whatever, but it would, you know, we'd be fighting over it and sail through their race course and, you know, try to just let them know that we're, we're there and we can do what we like, you know, and they can't do any of that. So it was, yeah, we were pretty aggressive, really. But it was a lot of fun along the way, too. I mean, used to have quite a bit of fun with that. In 2000, then, you beat Luna Rossa 5-0. But then what followed was the disillusion of Team New Zealand. Describe what happened, Brad. How did all that come about? Actually, it was, you know, it's no one's fault, eh? I think, it, you know, it sort of gets, yeah, everything change, people change as they get older and whatever. But Blake didn't really want to do it anymore. And so he came to me and he said, look, I'm out of it. I've had enough, you know. This we After this, I'm out. And I said to him, well, Jesus, you know, because that's not what we think. We're in it for this longer haul, you know. And uh, I said, how's it going to work? Because, you know, this is, you're at the, you're the head of this group. Sure, Russell was, you know, a leader as well, and probably, you know, definitely the sailing side and, you know, that technical side, he was had a huge, you know, that was his baby, really. But Blake was the guy that, you know, the country looked to and the sponsors looked to and whatever. And anyway, the, he said, oh, well, you've got to talk to these guys, which were a bunch of, you know, lawyers and accountants that sat on this. And that you know they probably they probably had their heart in the right place, and they, but they really did not. I think they'd seen us grow up, and I think they thought we were always going to be, not quite up to it. And they never understood that the hardware doesn't matter; it's all about the software. And they never got that. Even to today, they probably still don't get that. But and it was about the people. It's the about IP. the people. Yeah. yeah, it's got nothing to do with the boat. Who cares about the boats? You know. Boats you can design and build, and they probably, you know, well, they're going to evolve anyway. But the people, you just, if you lose them, and so I was worried, I'm very worried, and we, I put a lot of work into it. Over a year, we wasted trying to have a transition agreement with them, and it never worked out. It never got to the end, and actually, um, the kicker was because um, Russell was, you know, he was a, you know, 
he doesn't uh, leave too many stones unturned. So he was pretty aggressive in that sort of thing. And they, they, I think they really, uh, guys like Tom Clark was sitting on that, who are old, you know, fans of Blake. And he owns Ceramco that Blake did around the world race on. And he just didn't understand that, you know, losing a guy like Coots was detrimental for a lot of things. You know, there's a, you know, underneath him, there's another 50 guys just want to leave because he's not, he's not the leader of it anymore. And they couldn't understand that, that doing a transition deal would have been good for everybody, would have been good for New Zealand, it would have been good for everyone. Barker would have stayed with that group and been, probably would have steered the boat in the next defence. And, you know, because Russell was more moving, wanted to move more into management rather than keep sailing all the time and stuff like that. But they didn't, they wouldn't take it on. And so he was, Russell was down, we were right at the, the crux of it. And, I'd sort of almost talked him into it. And Doug Myers, who was ran line New Zealand, he was getting on a plane in um, Queenstown. And I was saying to Russell, well, it looks like they're going to agree to this. So, we, you know, it looks like we can. And he said to uh, Myers, uh, Myers said to him, oh, well, how's it going? He said, Russell said, oh, not so good. And he says, oh, well, you can always do it. go and do something else. So for that, Coots just lost it. He d didn't lost it. He just lost but his motivation, you know, and me too. I just thought because these guys were—he was one of the sponsors and one, the guy that was trying to controlling things. Just didn't get it. Just a hard-ass corporate attitude towards a sporting difficult situation, and so that he just decided right then. I just said, "Oh, look, screw it, we're out of," and he said, "Yeah, we're out." And at that stage, we'd. You know, we were negotiating with ESPN and trying to set the structure for the next time. And it just turned to custard. Yeah. Not good. I had to front a press conference down here in the squadron. And Coots, for some reason, was bloody late getting back into the country. So I had to do it on myself, tell them that we weren't doing it again. <laughs> yeah, I always thank him for that. Of the Kiwi press, are oh yeah, they yeah, got stuck hard. in. Yeah. yeah, they got stuck in. They didn't want to know the where or why. They had no interest in that. And they actually, when we opted out, we didn't have a job. We didn't have a job. Look, you could say we're naive, thinking that we wouldn't have a job. But I for sure we. Got, I was going to sail for another team, but at that stage we didn't have one. And uh, it was interesting because I was actually leaving the following week to sail in Antigua with Larry Ellison. And he'd heard about it. So he, I had to go and sit with him on his boat the day I got there. And he offered me a job to, to do the Oracle campaign. And um, he'd chosen Dixon as the skipper. And uh, he was getting Bill Erklins to run a, a group, you know. And I just said to him, I've got this other guy. He's pretty good. And a couple of other guys that come with him. And he goes, no, I don't need that. I got, and I said, oh, well, good luck. So that was the end of that. <laughs> and then I saw him at the Louis Vuitton regatta a couple of years later. He says, have you still got that job? I said, you've still got that job. <laughs> anyway, he was funny with it, Larry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, quite brave to turn that down. Tell, tell us what happened after that. Actually, um, um, Ernesto Berrelli was trying to buy a boat off Team New Zealand. And Russell had dealt with him 
and he'd come to New Zealand. I, I, I guess I met him, but I didn't remember it, and because I was fully immersed in the. And so he spoke to. Um, he spoke to. He was in Europe, and so he spoke to Ernesto. And Ernesto said, "Oh look, what are you guys doing? Because you know, I'm starting this team, and maybe you might be interested." And so Russell started talking to Ernesto, and then. I had an agreement with Marco Piccinini, who was the guy that works for Vitelli in the Challenger Record, that if we ever left there, we'd tell him. So I told him. And so then he met Russell somewhere in Europe, and Russell, he said to him, oh, Brad tells me you're leaving. You're not sailing for Team New Zealand anymore. He says, is that true? And he says, oh, well, I guess if Brad said that, it's true. But they didn't believe it, so they were out of it. And in the end, we actually uh, met with, after I was in Antigua, we went to, I went to New York and met with uh, Bitterelli. And we had a, a meeting there and decided to do it with him. And then basically just immersed in that whole thing. And actually Bitterelli bought another, he did another favour to us in terms of he bought a way of doing business that I'd never ever seen before and breaking the the whole thing down like he's building a pharmaceutical product. Way more professional than you've seen before. Way, way more professional than we'd seen in the past and way more and just added to, you know, made a huge difference to the way. We sort of bought a way of running the team and how we should go about it and people we needed to use and he, uh, you know, he bought a, the whole professional side of it and just a different way of doing things, which, you know, was, you know, it was amazing really. Well, as you predicted, it wasn't just the two of you, you and Russell that, that left, but also, you know, a band of brothers from, from Team New Zealand came to Alinghi with you. What was that like 2003 here with Alinghi? I mean, we've been here for this cup and I can vouch for the passion of, of the Kiwi sailing fan. You know, what was it like going about your daily life all the while sailing for the Swiss, trying to win the cup away from New Zealand? Yeah, it was sort of, uh, it was a bit, I mean, you, I think people underestimate, uh, probably underestimated Russell and maybe me to a certain extent, but also Murray and, uh, you know, Warwick and Simon and Dino and, the other guys that we brought with us, the, the boat builders that came with us and, you know, the, that side of it. So, you know, we, we were sort of, definitely they targeted us, definitely Coots and myself. So we had, you know, we ended up with death threats and bloody, uh, a lot of animosity towards us guys, you know. But it, unfortunately, what it did do was just sort of strengthen our resolve, you know. So it made... You know, that's the problem. I don't think you, you don't want to poke Coots too many times before he pokes you back, you know. So he's that sort of guy. You know, he he's live and let live, but, you know, they, they were pushing us pretty hard and so we started pushing back. And so it becomes pretty tough. And, you know, we, I don't think you would, uh, you know, we, I think we can be tough if we have to. And so that's what happened. And we, managed, you know, we sort of 
basically we circled the wagons and around that group and we had a, you know, Ernesto did a, a good job in sort of um, getting, the, you know, the base and putting the money into the base where we could just drive in there and, you know, so I'd just be living at home and driving to work, living at home, driving to work and uh, doing, you know, sailing as much as we possibly could. So it was, yeah, we were sort of, uh, it was a tough time for both of us, but, you know, obviously the rewards were worth it. I mean, that's a real fortress, isn't it? I mean, in the in the place you grew up with friends and family everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, it was tough, huh? Yeah, even my mother, she wasn't too happy with me. <laughs> anyway, she's got over that. Russell came on the podcast a while back and he talked vividly actually about sailing out every day through the, the hostile crowd. And actually just that, that it really, it fueled the fire. That, you know, it didn't get to him. He, he enjoyed it in, in a kind of way in the end. Yeah, I guess, you know, him, I mean, you know, but between him and I, we were sort of, we did enjoy it because we were, felt pretty confident in our, in the group that we were with. You know, we had great backup, you know, we had great camaraderie within our group, you know, and we had, we'd had an opportunity to have a clean uh, piece of paper and he'd done a fantastic job, you know, getting Rolf Vrolich to come in and design the boat and, um, you know, the technical side of it, he'd done a great job in, in choosing a lot of those people and formulating that, that group. And Bertarelli did a fantastic job in just the culture, you know, manufacturing the right culture so that, you know, we, we had a balance of fun and professionalism at the same time. And so, yeah, Russell was really, you know, he was, he certainly was, he put his shoulder into it. And, uh, you know, it was crazy. I mean, it was madness, eh? That was just, I mean, we were, they were trying to put bloody uh, bulletproof vests on us when we towed out. And the thing was, absolutely, I had protection. He had protection. A lot of the guys had protection, the Kiwis. You know, so you, you know, but things were, the local media here, especially the talkback side of it, is, is, a, is a pretty septic culture. And... They, you know, they just fueled a, they started right from the beginning and it, it got worse. And then they started a, a movement around this thing called Blackheart, which was a great name for a group that hated us guys. So we'd have billboards outside our base with, you know, getting stuck into us. And it was, it got out of control, really. Blackheart, so an organised yeah. campaign against... That's right. It was fueled by a lot of quite quite a few of the wealthy guys that had a vested interest that if the cup left here would be bad for them. So yeah. What kind of things on the billboards? What did they say? Oh, I can't remember what it said, but it was. I mean, the, I think they were targeted Russell more than me, which was good. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It was. Uh, but yeah, it was bad. The whole thing was bad, and they had you know they had lunches and get together and you know. They just made, they tried to make it as as hard as it possibly could be to live here and compete. And what they didn't get, they just don't get, you know, we're professional sailors, you know, that was our living, you know. And sure, we'd done it for New Zealand, but we'd won it and defended it for New Zealand. And we probably would have stayed if it had been the, the right way. But definitely Russell, you know, the guys that left, it's changed their lives, you know, a lot.
to, for the better. In what way? Financially? Well, financially, yes. That's probably one of the you know the main the key thing. But I mean, they also it's just opened up other you know exposed us to Europe and just all that sort of you can do over there, you know. And so, you know, we we sort of had the best of both worlds. We were living down here a lot of the time and working and living in Europe as well. So, we, you know, it was it really made a big difference. We've been here the last nearly four months now, sort of embracing the Kiwi media, if you like. I mean, they have long memories. What's it, what's it like now? I mean, you're, you're living here a, a lot of the time, Brad, you know. Do people still remember? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously, you know, you, you because you're well known, you know, you just, and, you know, like I, I'm not, I'm not that, I'm not, I don't want to hide from that. I'm quite, I'm quite proud of what, what we've done. And so, you know, I'm happy to be stand up and be uh, counted on all those sort of things. And so are the other guys. So, you know, the sport's been good to us, but, you know, we love the sport. And so it's, you know, people should realise that it is like that. And things have changed here. You know, the rugby players play overseas and there's a different mentality for it, for it than it was in those days where, you know, it really turned nasty. Yeah. To this day, I'm still not happy with what happened there. I'm going to take it out of the hands of the sailors and I'll put it in the hands of the lawyers. And that's what happened. Well, of course, you didn't just defect to the Swiss team. You, Russell Coates, the rest of the guys, you, you took the cup away from New Zealand, or certainly that's how they'd see it. I mean, did that change the way people treated you here at all? And I mean, can you remember what what that was like. I mean, it must be weird. It's your home country, yet you're you're winning the cup for another. I mean, just describe that moment. Well, it was just yeah, okay, yeah. There's a tinge of disappointment for sure in terms of the, you know, just the, how it all happened in the end, you know. But the, you know, we, there was a lot of elation in terms of how well, you know, this first time team, you know, it just it just showed, you know, especially. I, I guess, you know, especially Coots himself, how, you know, the just the transition between defending for New Zealand and then challenging out of the blue into a brand new team, you know. And okay, we had a billionaire as a backer and he was sailing with us on the boat, which makes a huge difference because he sees it firsthand. He understands the problems that you're facing, you know. And so just to do that, I think that was one of the biggest jobs mountains you could climb you know and so he you know just they, they, i think that as a group we you know the key guys that have that had done it for new zealand but also then moved to Alingi, they they really got up but and sort of bought the best out of a lot of the other guys like you know i mean rolf Rollick, he was a standout he's his character sort of you know he's not just a designer he's you know whispering in your ear you know you should attack there or you should have done that you know He's a sailor. So, you know, he, those guys, it's, we had a great group, really. And, uh, yeah, you wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change a thing. It was just, just a pity it had to happen here. <laughs> well, you won the cup and then you can do what you like with it. And the next cup was to be in Valencia, which, I mean, you went on to win your fourth cup win. I mean, it's unbelievable, Brad. But early on in, in that Valencia campaign, 
the wheels fell off Alinghi a little bit, didn't they? There was an acrimonious split with Russell. What happened there and, you know, how difficult was that? You'd been together for such a long time. Yeah, I sort of, you know, him and um, the administration side of it, so there was a couple of other guys that were in instrumental in that, but Russell himself, I guess he lost a bit of trust there. You know, the real, you'd have to ask him exactly what he was thinking, but right from the, the get-go, you know, I basically talked to him about that, and he was, he said, oh, look, you should stay here and keep it going, you know, and it's not, not your fight. And I actually didn't want to fight with Ernesto, you know, he, I had nothing but good times with him and, and a great relationship with him. And by then we had hired um, Peter Homburg to, uh, as one of the sailors, and of course we had Joachim Schumann, and um, Grant Simmer, we'd brought Grant Simmer in to help us um, with design to start with, but also, you know, management, because Grant's good with that. He likes working out where the money's going. Anyway, we had a the basis of a, you know, a, a good group, and, you know, Rolf was obviously still with us, and so... We had to pick, you know, it was a bad, I mean, to this day, I'm still, you know, not happy with what happened there. And, you know, it just pitted, you know, he just sort of left and it wasn't a great outcome for him as well, you know. I certainly didn't want him to go. Tried like hell to try to talk him out of it and uh, got nowhere, which is normal. <laughs> you did win the cup, but... Uh, and after that win, just think back. I mean, it was quite a bad time in Cupland, wasn't it? Alinghi held the cup. A, a challenger of record was declared. Oracle contested it. By now fronted by Coots, he was now Oracle. And the whole thing ended up in court. What was the big problem with all of that? Well, I mean, the, the defence in Valencia was actually, we were lucky because we hired Ed Baird. Really, you know, I'd had history with Ed Beard. With '95, he he was the uh, trial or well, the other helmsman, so he did. You know, he was that guy is handy. He's in your top five, and basically, he came in um, after being on the commentary team the, for the actual cup here in New Zealand, and wound up getting another shot to actually sail again, and just really showed how good he was in terms of. He helped, he just sort of, you know, it was, it was either going to be him or Homburg, and, you know, I think it was always going to be Ed, you know. And Peter's a great sailor and, you know, in his own right and can do things, and he certainly, uh, he can, you know, he gets fired up, that's for sure, but uh, Ed is just, you know, another level, I think. And so that, that went to there, and we actually won in a really... Uh, I think one of the best sort of exhibitions of, you know, two very good teams sailing at, at a high level. You know, you had Terry Hutchinson doing tactics and Barker sailing the boat and really good sailors on board uh, a boating design boat, which was, you know, as good as us, just it didn't tack as well. And, you know, you, that's what you see in those first few parts of the the match itself is just the strengths and the weaknesses of the other boats. And we were sailing very, you know, 
very well, I think, you know, and he did some dumb things and did some good things, but in the end won. And then I sort of got a heads up that there was trouble brewing over that, you know, because Oracle were the challenger of record, the Golden Gate Yacht Club was the challenger of record, not the Golden Gate Yacht Club, was it the Golden Gate? No, it was the, what do they call themselves? I think it was the Golden Gate, Golden Gate Yacht Club. I'm thinking about St. Francis because that's the big one there. But the Golden Gate Yacht Club was the the challenger of record. And actually the relationship we had with them was a good one because the deal that we had with them, we shared, because the America's Cup's a trust, you share the income from it between the challenge, the defender and the challengers. And so the deal they did, they split the money. So in, in the end, Team New Zealand wound up with 10 million euro out of the what was being paid for by Valencia and the EU to have the America's Cup there. So, you know, it was a good deal for everybody. Okay, Alinghi won and they got to do it again. And the next one was actually a bigger deal. But actually the designers wanted to change the boat to like a 90 foot. And then you wind up with all these, you know, he said, she said, and you've got an advantage because you've designed the boat already and blah, blah, blah. And then the, the, a few of the advisors to Ernesto wanted to use the uh, yacht club in Spain. And so should have used the Royal Thames Yacht Club that Keith Mills was using for, uh, but in the end they chose that. And I think Larry was sick of losing. That's what I think has happened. And he thought, bugger it, I'm going to take it out of the hands of the sailors and I'll put it in the hands of the lawyers. And that's what happened. And, you know, I went through that whole process and watched it, and I couldn't believe it was just a waste of everyone's time and money, you know. And, okay, the boats they built were, looked amazing, you know, these big spiders sort of sailing around. And But, you know, was it really good for the sport? I don't think so. I think it was bad. It didn't really – it just put everybody on hold for a long time, and, you know, a lot of guys lost their jobs, and it was, you know, it was just a dumb thing, really. I thought the whole thing – should have been, or should have worked out some other way. But that's the America's Cup. I mean, as you say, it was a long time in litigation, but the outcome was the deed of gift match in Valencia. Two giant multi-hulls, the defender against the challenger, and on a lingi, your backer, team owner Ernesto Bertarelli, steering the boat. I mean, it was. I was there, we were we were filming it for CNN and it was so dramatic, this sort of winter, early spring week in, in Valencia. I mean, did that set off alarm bells with you at all that, you know, here was Ernesto wanting to, you know, wanting to drive the machine? Well, I guess he was sailing, uh, you know, he'd sailed, he'd won the cup twice sailing on board. So he'd been, you know, he's a handy sailor. And I think he thought he, he was sailing uh, his D-35s on the Lake of Geneva. And so the guys that were actually in our group that were sailing against him would have a hard time beating him. So he's not, you know, he's not, he's pretty handy at sailing a multi-hull, you know. But we had, um, we had a couple of other guys, uh, French guys that sailed with us and all very well known. And, uh, they 
I think in the end, Ernesto paid for that whole thing. That was his deal. He, you know, the sponsorship disappeared. And uh, we actually wound up sharing those helming responsibilities a little bit and then with other guys. But he, in the end, I think he sailed the boat probably probably as fast as it was going to be sailed. We, were, I was more worried that the thing was going to fold in half and sink. It did feel like that. And actually, both boats, we were waiting. I mean, the, everybody was waiting for something to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because he, I mean, we, I mean, we, we had a, a smattering of, you know, there's a lot of French guys like uh, Alain uh, Gautier was, uh, on the, you know, sailing with us. And, you know, but I think those guys really didn't understand the, the, how critical it was that if we broke the thing, that was it. We couldn't fix it in time to, you know, we just, we, we just, and the, you know, the things were 120 feet long and huge, um, semi-winged, you know, the masts were unbelievably expensive. Everything's expensive, you know, everything's ridiculous, you know. I mean, Luke Perron did a, I think he did a great job and, you know, his, for his part of it, but the whole thing was nonsense. You know, it shouldn't have happened. And I, I hope it never happens again, you know. I hope they don't go there. When Faye did it with the big boat versus the multi-hull with Dennis, that was another stupid error for the cup, you know. But it's, I think the guys, when you're the defender, there's got to be a bit more balance in between the two groups. And how you get that, I don't know. If the principles are, are difficult guys, you're never going to get there. And Larry's, he's a difficult guy. How hard was it losing that deed of gift match? Oh, look, I, you know, it doesn't, losing doesn't sit that well, I don't think, with any of the guys in our group. And we didn't do that to lose, but we were, you know, we always felt we were on the back foot with that because they'd developed that boat a year before we had actually finished the defence of the America's Cup, they were building that boat. So they'd start to build that boat a long time before we actually finished the, the Cup. So they, they, you know, he had a plan, a long-term plan. And, you know, that, I mean, that's the game, really. You can do it that way if you want to. And the Cup is like that. It's, you know, it's susceptible to a deed of gift challenge at any time. And even now, these guys will be worried about that uh, looking forward. That's interesting. Why did you say that? Because both Luna Rossa and Team New Zealand are susceptible to a deed gift challenge. You know, you're susceptible to a wealthy guy coming in and trying to challenge you straight away and then try to fight that off. If he is disgruntled about the way things are going, he might do a deed of gift challenge and then you'll say, oh no, I've already got a challenge, you wait in line. And next minute he takes you to court and you go to court in New York. So it's if, if it's an American team, you don't want to poke the bear too many times because he, you know, he might wind up, you might wind up in a New York court. And that's not a, I don't think he can win there. There's a lot going on, isn't there? Not just on the racetrack. No, no, there's a lot going on. Um, Brad, you wrote about this concept of the cup, I think, which suggests that it's really important to you, that the cup is the pinnacle 
of our sport, and it should always be the pinnacle of our sport, that settling it in the courtroom isn't what it's about. I mean, what was your thinking behind all of that? Well, I mean, the, the America's Cup, I think, is the pinnacle of yacht racing. It should be the pinnacle of yacht racing. And whether you are a traditionalist or a modern era guy, the Cup's been around, you know, 180 years or whatever. It's, it's, it is the pinnacle of, of sailing. You know, there's nothing, there's not another part of sailing that gets uh, so much resource and money thrown at it to try and win it. And I think if, it, if, it, if there was some sort of structure that you could come up that really evolved it. So if you look at what happened here when, when Team New Zealand won it, they, you know, that whole concept of having the bases around the viaduct, it just changed things. I mean, it was just really, a, I mean, if you ever went to uh, Newport where the, all the teams were lined up around down Thames Street, you know, something pretty special really. And then the viaduct thing, worked very well and then Valencia was a huge moment for the sport I think because you had 13 teams all got bases all got you know it was a heady you know you could see it being more like a Formula One competition which is what whether they like it or not is what the teams aspire to be because they look at Formula One they try to get a Formula One team to help them and they try to aspire to be like a Formula One team. And it's not like that. It's not at that level, but it could be. And going to court and arguing over it, it just, I don't know, it's not, to me it just doesn't sit right because you, the, the sport should be all about, like, I, I mean, I like watching the, I like watching sport at any any lot sport like rugby or whatever or tennis or whatever anything that's on TV that you can see it being played at the highest degree and sport sportsmen and sportswomen want to show their skills off and they don't want to win seven nil they want to they want to win but they want to show that it's not that easy that they've got to a level that is and so when you watch rugby I can talk to a guy that plays an all black. I can't. I don't understand that game like he does. Or even if you take golf, I play golf, but I don't play what what the professionals play. They play another game. In sailing's like that. I can talk to Peter Burling or or um, James Spittle about what they what they're doing, and I might have a better idea than most. But they're current and at the top of their game, and they are at a level that is far and beyond. A club sailor or whatever and that's where the America's Cup should be. Let's talk about the number of competitors which is a, a frequent criticism of the Cup particularly at the moment. And we've had three challengers here but if if you look back at other campaigns we often see say a US boat populated by Aussies or Lingi as an example where the nationality rule was removed on crew members. You know Lingi was a pretty diverse crew. Where do you sit on that? Either either option is problematic in a way. Nationality. Yeah. I think to me nationality doesn't exist. It's a it's a myth if you ask me because it's it's just a financial rule. So you can have anybody as a 
it doesn't matter, you can hire somebody from overseas, you just have to jump through the hoops that they make you jump through. So if there's a nationality clause like there is in the Cup now, who's it, who's it really um, there for? Is it for the local team? Actually, what it's doing is stopping the teams coming down here early and sailing here because they have to fit into a nationality clause or whatever. I just don't, I think you're better off to put your effort into uh, encouraging participation. And whether it's a, you know, whether it's an EU team, it could be an EU team or a, some other group that get themselves together, they still have to have a yacht club that they represent. But I just, I think that, I think it's a real draconian way of doing it, is having a nationality rule. Because I think that's people that don't understand the America's Cup. The America's Cup is a regatta between yacht clubs. You can bring the, the parochialism of the countries into it, but say the UK, they could have the Royal Yacht Squadron and, you know, the Hamble Yacht Club, both challenging for the, for, for the UK. There's no difference between those groups, but one's a... You know, yacht club up the handle, and one's sitting on the end of the Isle of Wight. It's. I, I just think it's a. Yeah, they should get away from that. Get more into particip encouraging participation, letting other teams have whoever they want. I mean, if they want to put a salary cap or a or, or a cap, I mean, you, the new yacht club just come out with a protocol that is 140 pages long, but in it they have a suggested cap of what the team should spend. And they, you know, it's probably the way forward, really. What is it about the cup, Brad? I mean, you've invested a lot of your career, your time, an awful lot of energy into chasing it. Why is it so special to you? Uh, I guess it was because it was unattainable here as a kid. So I grew up here, we viewed, we looked at the America's Cup, you know, I grew up sailing with all these other guys, you know, we used to sell dinghies and whatever, but we, it was something that was unattainable as a Kiwi guy, you know. So guys that were sailing overseas really, you know, for us it was probably Peter Blake was the first of the guys that was, you know, sailing on one of the, Big Maxis that for that Bob Bell, I think Condor or Bermuda or whatever it was called. Anyway, I think he was the first of the Kiwis that sort of pushed out overseas. But actually, in the Cup game, there was nobody. That it was something that we could look at, dream about, never, never ever think of that you'd actually be in it or win it. It was something unattainable, and that's you know why '83 was such a big moment for New Zealand and for us guys, because it sort of made you think, well, maybe, you know. So that's what the Cup, and, and it still is to me. I think it's very hard to win, really hard to win. It's not something, it, all those things have got to be right, you know. You have to make, you know, it's, a, it's not just one person or, you know, it's a real team effort and the money has to be available, uh, the resources got to be available, the people have got to make the right decisions. It's, you know, it's a complex game and I've just been lucky I think I've been lucky because I've been you know exposed to guys that are you know fantastic at that
you've achieved an awful lot in a stellar career sailing in some of modern sailing's most celebrated campaigns. What would you have done differently? Where would you have changed things if you could go back and, and do things differently? Oh, I don't know. Probably, uh, probably, probably, you know, like maybe spend a bit more time sailing dinghies a, a bit longer. I sort of graduated for, to keel boats quite quickly. And that, you know, was good and bad. But, it, you know, in those days you sort of stuck as a, a laser sailor and they're, they're not a great boat to sail. And I was always a bit small for a fin. But, you know, probably fit the fin now. Anyway, so it, it's not, you know, I probably could have sailed in dinghies a little bit longer. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't change much, eh? I wouldn't change much. I would just, things sort of, you know, life's a bit like that. You sort of get to, there's options. You can choose one path or another. And I'm, I've been a bit lucky. I've, you know, made a few mistakes, but I've wound up with the right people that have helped me in my career, you know, and they, they have helped me. I've had a lot of help in, in, you know, being on winning teams and having, you know, now friend, obviously lifelong friends that we've experienced all this together. Made a few good tactical decisions, not just tactical. That's right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, I guess that's a gene, isn't it? You must have, somebody gave it to me. Yeah. <laughs> Brad, thank you. It's been a fascinating listen. Thank you so much for your time. Anytime, Julie. Thank you. Brad Butterworth, love him. An astonishing career, a ruthless approach, and with hindsight, it's not unfair to say he really accelerated the professionalism of our sport. America's Cup sailors that followed, be grateful. Brad and his peers opened the door. You know we love to hear from you, so let me know what you think. Like and review and subscribe on whatever platform you join us on. And buy us a coffee if you've enjoyed the pod. Buy me a coffee.com forward slash sailing. I get all the credit, but Tim at Vertigo Films actually makes these pods the lovely things that they are. Massive attention to detail, editing and producing each one. Big thanks to Tim. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. Have fun on the water and sail safe, everyone. This is Castle One. Castle One. Great speaking. Oh, 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 that's a good one, Jimmy. Still gaining on the mainline now. Gaining on the mainline. We're looking at 10-5-42. Matching him on the boundary, yeah. Copy. This is Castle One standing by. Out.